0: This is the American Exception Podcast, and I'm Aaron Good. This is part 14, the penultimate episode of our Destiny Betrayed series on the JFK assassination. We have a great guest returning to the show today, so we're going to get right into it. But first, since we're dedicating this episode to our friend, the great Peter Dale Scott, and since this episode is about Alan Dulles, we're first going to present this clip of Peter talking about a spooky incident involving Alan Dulles the old man himself.
1: Yeah, well, I was going to ask about uh, one
0: other experience you had during, those, during the early 60s, uh, and particularly this one relates to, to JFK, was your experience, I think it was at the Hoover Institute it, it, uh, at Stanford, um, hearing, hearing some, some old Eastern Europeans grumbling about uh, JFK's policies. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that, uh, that anecdote and, and uh, what, you, what you drew from it.
2: Yeah, well, when I came back from Poland, I came with uh, lots of people who told me people to look up. And uh, in some cases, I did eagerly, in some cases just as a favorite. And one of these right-wing polls said uh, the um, head of the Hoover Institution, who's a Canadian, what was his name, Glenn, somebody, he's having a dinner. And I've been told I can bring a guest, so I would like to bring you. So I went uh, and saw a slice of America that I don't think I've ever been a witness to since in 50 years, a group of people who were all, all of them except me, astonishingly, astonishingly reactionary. And the one topic, this was the summer, I'm very certain it was either June or July of 1963, in other words, the last year of Kennedy's presidency, and there was only one topic of conversation at this table, what are we going to do about the president? What on earth? How can we stop this man? And uh, said, in some cases, with the kind of tone of people who felt that they could stop this man because, you know, again, I was having a glimpse of the deep state but from a rather different perspective. And what was uh, very dramatic about this conversation was it was ended when a priest dressed in a soutane, which is the mark of an orthodox priest But somehow it had become clear, I don't know if I asked him or someone else, he was orthodox in ritual, but he was in fact a Roman Catholic Jesuit. And he had a kind of authoritative demeanor around him. If he said something, you you felt he was saying it with, with authority. And what he said quietly but with authority was, you don't have to worry about this problem, the old man is taking care of it. And uh, I told this to David Talbot, and uh, David Talbot said, wow, this is proof that Alan Dulles is behind the the Kennedy assassination, and uh, I don't see it as proof. It's proof that somebody thought that it was being taken care of by high authority. And it is true, as David has argued with me, that in the CIA, Dulles was referred to as the old man. The problem is that in the FBI, Hoover was referred to as the old man, and there may be other agencies where that happened too. So I don't draw a direct line. I mean, I have my own reasons for, as I've written, for suspecting the CIA. The fact that uh, Helms testified to the Warren Commission and perjured himself, the CIA was hiding something, doesn't mean that they instigated the assassination, does mean I think that they were enough close enough to the core that they had to be part of it, but I think Hoover was too. I think all the, the Secret Service, they, they all lied. lied, lied.
3: The way it comes. and take all the shit from everything and
0: everyone walking over I am here today with a special guest host who some of you may know he's reporting in from the oil fields of Tyler Texas I'm mm-hmm. talking about brace dry hole Belden uh, brace oh, wow. thanks for joining us today
3: I'm out here I'm out here roughnecking <laughs> And we
0: are blessed today to have one of our favorite returning guests, David Talbot, who's going to be talking with us about Alan Dulles and the Devil's Chessboard. David, thank you for being here. Thank you, Aaron. Now, this episode is being dedicated to Peter Dale Scott, who is a friend of the three of us and who our listeners should know pretty well by now. Um, He is on the mend and uh, we just wanted to uh, let him know we're thinking about him and all of his uh, contributions to these areas. He's he's peerless here.
3: Yeah. I, I, you know, I wanted to mention that I think, I think Peter, in addition to all his research and his right, I mean, uh, deep politics uh, is one of my absolute favorite books. Um, You know, he, he, he just, he is, his his breadth of work is incredible, and every every time I try to look into a subject, he's always somehow written something either related to it or directly about it. Um, but uh, I think one of his sort of overlooked um, contributions is the fact that he's really smart. I mean, I guess that's probably not overlooked, and uh, and gives a a certain patina of respectability that uh, that guys like me cannot seem to ever muster. And uh, I, I yeah, I, he's a, he's a real treasure and. You know i it, it's it's i'm glad he's very much glad he's still with us i mean my god the guy has lived a long and full life um and uh and yeah i you know he's still writing still going which is just incredible i mean half the time i can't even do that and uh you know i'm i'm only about two thirds of his age mm-hmm.
1: yeah i i regard him uh, as um uh, <clears throat> a mentor even in my ripe old age uh, Peter uh, really got the book started, Devil's Chessboard, because of his own interest in Dallas and conversations that he and, and I and Karen Croft, who's my colleague who's worked on all my books with me, and Karen and I are both dear friends of Peter. And so uh, the Devil's Chessboard, which we're going to talk about today, really grew out of a conversation with Peter. Uh, as I said, Peter's been a great mentor and a friend over the years, and he's a great man of culture, as you were saying, Grace. Uh, he's a poet also. Uh, he pioneered, of course, in the field of uh, research about the deep state and deep power in America, but uh, he has a side gig too, which is, uh, he's a great poet. So this is a great shout out to him, and uh, I'm glad, Aaron, that you decided to dedicate the show today to Peter. He's worthy of all our love and respect.
0: Yes, I I echo those words. And I know for me personally, he also had a huge role in my own dissertation and book. It's really a a refinement of uh, his own theories of the state and a way to try to grapple with the nature of top-down, dark power that prevails in a system that's supposedly democratic and open and, and free, uh, and, and so he struggled and struggled for decades to, uh, to look into the abyss and to speak to it and bear witness to these things that most people, for good reason, recoil from and want to deny, and somehow he has been able to do it without any permanent psychic fracture. It's really remarkable uh, what, what he's been able to do, and uh, it's always a joy to be able to speak with him still. And so uh, I'm, I'm definitely thrilled to be able to uh, work with him today and to be able to dedicate this episode to him today. And I'm also very excited to be able to talk about Alan Dulles uh, because he is in some ways uh, the personification of the deep politics of the US after World War II. Um, and David spent years dealing with this character uh, and writing about it. And uh, it, I think we could, like, maybe a good place to start is where it all started for Alan Dulles, David, and that is his extremely uh, privileged background and, and pedigree. Um, how do you think that his family situation and upbringing
1: uh, set him on the course that he would go on in his life? Well, that's a very good question, Aaron. Um And let me just preface it by repeating what I said earlier. Uh, My interest in Alan Dulles and um, in writing the book, The Devil's Chessboard, really came out of conversations with Peter Dale Scott. Uh, after writing my book, Brothers, about the Kennedys, I was very intrigued by, was there somebody who represented the deep state in America? Mm-hmm. Was there one or two or more people who were really instrumental in plotting the uh, assassination of President Kennedy and the cover-up? And I kept coming back to Alan Dulles. All roads left, l- led to Alan Dulles. So he may be even more than uh, the deep state today than power in America today, which was more i think widespread and more amorphous uh he, he represented i think the central figure during the cold war years and uh he was you know he served every president actually from uh, world war one up through kennedy um so you know his his reign went on and on he himself came from a family and to answer your question that was uh really of modest means. His father was a Presbyterian minister, didn't make much money, but the power was on his mother's side. They had uh, bankers and diplomats on that, uh, Secretary of State on that side of the family. And I think he and his older brother, Foster, John Foster Dulles, who later Mm -hmm. became. Secretary of State, of course, under President Eisenhower and was, uh, in many ways, the, the guy who paved the way to Alan Dulles's power uh, at Sullivan and Cromwell, where he was the managing partner, uh, a very powerful law firm on Wall Street. Um, those two brothers, I think, got their sense of power entitlement from their mother. Uh, not from their father's side of the family. So they grew up surrounded by, you know, when they would go on summer vacations to their grandfather's house, Uh, there were people from all around the world, dignitaries there. And they felt, I think, that that was the world they wanted to be part of, not their father's, more humble, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of religious side. Right, that aspect of it, the Christian side always puzzled
0: me in a way because John Foster had the reputation of a stern minister, ministerial figure, but Alan did not. The brothers seem more different despite their, you know, being brothers, obviously.
1: Well, I think the piety, you're right, <laughs> that John Foster was known for, the kind of uh, self-righteousness and piety came from mm-hmm. maybe it's both sides of the family. Um, you know, he was the man in the homburg, the banker's uh, hat who was very uh, buttoned down and very stern figure. And Alan, his younger brother, was more freewheeling and I think did the dirty work for Sullivan and Cromwell long before he was doing dirty work for the CIA and for uh, the US government in Washington. I think he became a bag man, really a dirty trickster uh, quite early in his career, working as a a junior lawyer uh, under his brother at Sullivan and Cromwell on Wall Street.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's almost it's almost perfect how uh, so many of the people that came to form the early CIA and like the really the backbone of the organization. Uh, so we just basically transplanted from this world of like not even Wall Street traders, but Wall Street lawyers, um, you know, people who are uh, not known to be I mean, they probably exemplify definitely much of American spirit, but uh, they uh, not exactly always known to be paragons of virtue.
1: Yeah, as a good point, Brace. I think what happened was that we saw more and more as the 20th century went on and America grew in international power, kind of a, um, a merger between Wall Street and mm-hmm. the intelligence and security community in Washington. More and more, that was the enforcement arm, uh, in the CIA, the Pentagon, uh, for Wall Street. And so when uh, a government got in the way of uh, corporate interests uh, abroad, uh, we overthrew those governments. That's what Alan Dulles did when he was head of the CIA, whether it was in Guatemala or Iran. These are Democrats democratically elected uh, leaders that Alan Dulles decided were not in the interests, business interests of the U.S. And so many of whom were his clients, by the way, back in Wall Street. So conveniently, he now had the power as head of the CIA to overthrow these governments and to, to serve his clients once again as corporate clients.
0: Yeah, that era, even before he is empowered uh, with this um, seemingly omnipotent intelligence agency after World War II. Uh, before World War II, you know, in the 20s and 30s, um, he is working at as, as Sullivan Cromwell, but he also has these State Department uh, posts as well. And at Sullivan Cromwell, they're big Rockefellers, Standard Oil, Seven Sisters, are their big clients. Uh, what should we make of the double duty that Alan Dulles was pulling Prior to World War II, uh, where he was working different State Department uh, positions, but also seemed to be in oil intelligence. Like that, that's what Polgrain calls it: is oil intelligence, like doing this work for um, his sol- for Standard Oil Rockefeller
1: types. Well, of course, the oil industry was a very powerful industry. Still is. And uh, one of the major clients uh, of Sullivan and Cromwell on Wall Street and the Dulles brothers were, you know, treated them with great deference and great respect uh, throughout their careers. Um, You know, and so I think that, again, this is a part of their sense of entitlement. They felt that they knew what was best for America. And by by saying the Dallas brothers, I mean the circle that they represent, their clients and so on. So they were quite active in organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations and other New York based groups, which really worked out uh, official policy, government policy uh, months or if not years before uh, these policies were actually implemented in uh, Washington. But I think Dulles really um, comes into his own both brothers during the 1930s when they defy uh, President Roosevelt and, uh, you know. Foster, who's head of Sullivan and Cromwell, famously told his clients, "Just ignore these reforms, uh, Wall Street reforms that uh, FDR is trying to push through as part of the New Deal." So even then, in the 1930s, they have a policy of resistance against uh, the U.S. government. Um, And during World War II, when Allen, of course, goes to Switzerland and is stationed, in many ways, as the most powerful intelligence figure for the U.S. in continental Europe during World War II. He's doing business with the Nazis, even then, who were his clients uh, before the war and remained his clients during the war. I think he was a double agent working with uh, with Nazis as well as, as ostensibly the OSS, which was the predecessor to uh, the CIA. Right. His activities
0: during that time period are really remarkable uh in the 30s well actually even in the 20s polgrain uh greg polgrain writes that he was working with uh schilt's father in baku azerbaijan which was uh, related to was it a uh, noble oil company around there yeah and that he met him back back then in the 19 all the way back in the 1920s and then in the 30s he is uh, working to incorporate this Rockefeller Netherlands joint venture uh, that is over Papua and West you know, Western New Guinea. And he was doing these things before the war started. And so he's already involved in these geopolitical intrigues uh, before, before World War II and before he joins the OSS. Uh, so this is this impacts what he does during World War II. And how did this duality influence what he did? During, As you were mentioning how he and his brother at Sullivan Cromwell were more or less collaborating with the enemy, working with the Nazis. What about what Alan Dulles was doing during World War II that uh, incorporated both of his roles as U.S. government uh, official and then representative of corporate America?
1: Well, I I believe that FDR, who's a wily and and very crafty uh, leader uh, himself, knew that Dulles was playing uh, a double game. And I believe that FDR was using him as a dangle to expose Nazi agents in Switzerland. So FDR was not being bamboozled by uh, Dulles. I think he knew what he was doing when he sent him there to uh, to Bern uh, in Switzerland during the war. Uh, and Dulles was quite open about meeting with Nazi emissaries, Nazi representatives, uh, representatives of Himmler and, and others, who some of whom were sneaking across the border from Germany into Switzerland, a great risk to their own life to report about the Holocaust, that, which was in the early stages then, and other uh, Nazi atrocities. And uh, Dulles, uh, you know, basically looked the other way. Didn't think this was that important. Wanted to know more about, well, how's the left, the organized left in Europe? What's it doing in Germany? Is there still a communist party? And so on. He was looking even then after the war. Uh, FDR famously had, of course, a strategy of unconditional surrender, which he worked out with Churchill and with Stalin, who was of course uh, an ally during World War II the Soviet Union. And unconditional surrender meant just that—that that the Nazis had to give in completely. He thought it was an evil regime, and of course, later many of them were put on trial for war crimes. And uh, Alan Dulles basically ignored that strategy, that policy and went around FDR's back, met with Nazis like Karl Wolf, who was head of the SS in Italy. Uh, Operation Sunrise, it was called, it was, top, it was top secret. Met with a guy who should have been hung at Nuremberg by all rights, Carl Wolf, and instead cut a separate peace deal with him towards the end of the war, uh, unbeknownst to FDR. And Roosevelt, of course, himself was dying at the time and was in no position at that point to uh, intervene. Uh, Dulles knew that and was quite, I think, cynical about pursuing that strategy with the Nazis. Yeah,
0: that those aspects are Quite wild. He there he reportedly was looking into I believe you mentioned this and I think Peter I know Peter has written about this subject as well, that FDR and some of his the new dealers in his um, in his administration wanted to go go after people like Thomas McKittrick, uh, who's the head of the Bank of International Settlements Bank for International Settlements, which was more or less a Nazi bank. And then those that was very much in the same milieu as Alan Dulles and, and John Foster Dulles. Um, and that supposedly at the very end of his life, he may have been wanting to make even more, you know, um, uh, powerful moves against these these figures. But then he he dies. Did was this a, a huge blunder on FDR's part? Um Order. I think he was
1: biding his time, Aaron. I think President Roosevelt, his first uh, goal, of course, had to be to conclude the war successfully. I think he was focused on that in the final months of his life. He dies, I believe, in April of forty-five, before the war, just as the war is coming to a conclusion in Europe, uh, and uh, before it was concluded in the Pacific. So, uh, I think. He wanted to approach it one step at a time. But as I report in The Devil's Chessboard, I think FDR intended to have a banker's trial, supposedly, after the war. In which case, Dulles, both brothers, would have been tried as traitors during the war because of their close relationship with the Nazis. And you mentioned Thomas McKittrick, who is a Wall Street buddy of theirs, who did indeed uh, run the main bank in Switzerland, which the Nazis used to wander their uh, grotesquely aqu- acquired wealth through, uh, from throughout Europe, from many Jews who were sent to their deaths in concentration camps and so on. So uh, it's like a, a bad Fellini movie or a very Deccan Fellini movie. You read my book, those chapters, Uh, what was really going on in Europe during World War II. He was playing uh, footsies, Dallas again, with not only uh, emissaries from Himmler, who of course was the head of the SS and the most bloodthirsty member of the Hitler's regime, uh, and Jorgen Dahlmann, who's a gay translator and sort of the go-between Mussolini and Hitler living in Europe, living in Italy. Uh, the story about Jürgen Dahlman and his how he gets involved in Operation Sunrise, this uh, separate uh, peace deal that uh, that uh, Dulles was cutting with the Nazis. It's an amazing story. Um, they, at one point, Dulles sends, um, you know, uh, very brave men in to rescue Karl Wolf, head of the SS in uh, Italy, who's been surrounded by uh, partisans, by Italian partisans who are going to kill him or at least capture him, uh, as someone who's you know responsible for uh, atrocities in in Italy against partisans and, and people who support them, um, and because of Dulles intervening, they saved Carl Wolf's life. Karl Wolf, as I say, should have been put on trial at, at Nuremberg after the war. But Dulles intervened on his behalf repeatedly. And as a result, he lived to be a very successful advertising executive in West Germany, Karl Wolf, after the war, and uh, never, never really had to confront, uh, you know, uh, the judicial uh, authorities for the crimes that he committed. Very awful, uh, you know, terrible crimes as the head of the SS in Italy. Yeah, and I I
0: feel like this history is much more relevant to the present than people realize because the aftermath of World War II, you have the Axis powers and they've committed these horrendous crimes. You know, tens of millions of people in China, just China alone, get killed by the Japanese uh, imperialists. And then, of course, what the Nazis did. But then after the war, though you have some war crimes trials, you have some of the worst figures like a Karl Wolf or people worse than him, like a Galen or a Klaus Barbie, who are not who who were part of the actual Nazi paramilitary intelligence, uh, you know, milieu. And they are rehabilitated and key figures of the establishment, the German establishment, the German political economic elite that were not associated with just the, the Nazi aspect of it they are allowed to continue. And in Japan, it's a similar thing. In Japan, the, the ruling party was created with uh, like over $100 million worth of uh, stolen loot, the LDP, uh, that was uh, secured by Yoshio Kodama, who should have also been executed as a war criminal. And this sets up the the U.S., the, the main pillars of the U.S. empire, which are controlling the economics of everything to the Eat to the west of Russia and to the east of Russia, across the Pacific, by and large, and so today we're we're sort of seeing an attempt, I think, uh, of the U.S. to almost recreate that because things are going badly. That that the U because you still see Germany is is siding with the U.S., Japan is siding with the U.S., uh, and uh, potentially it looks like the U.S. wants to uh, have some sort of conflict over Taiwan so they can ostracized uh, china from the new world order or whatever and so dulles seemed to be like not just acting as a um you know government official diplomat obviously or an intelligence officer which he was at this time but as some kind of technician creating world order i mean it's why i guess your devil's chessboard
1: title is quite apt well you're right aaron he again and again makes deals with the devil Uh, And I think the Cold War grows directly out of the horrors of World War II, because what he did was to take these people off the scrap heap who should have been put on trial, men like Reinhard Galen, who was head of intelligence on the Eastern Front, the bloodiest front of World War II for Hitler during World War II. He makes Reinhard Galen, this is Dallas. he makes him head of intelligence for West Germany after the war, a man who, again, should have been put on trial at Nuremberg, Uh, and he's head of West German intelligence, the BND, uh, their agency is known as, uh, throughout much of the Cold War, uh, because of Alan Dulles' intervention. Again and again, we see Dulles doing this. So the Cold War in some ways, the demonizing of the Soviet Union comes directly out of a Nazi mentality. And look, Stalin was a monster himself. Uh, he didn't need us to provoke uh, his monstrous inclinations, as Putin is. And I'd be dead if I lived in Russia today as an independent journalist. So would you, probably. would be poisoned. But uh, we have actually made things worse. And Alan Dell certainly made things worse as one of the preeminent cold warriors. He provoked uh, Stalin's paranoia again and again. Even when he knew it would lead to massive bloodshed throughout the uh, areas in Eastern Europe controlled by the Soviet Union. He did it with uh, another thing called Operation Splinter, uh, in which he he inserted uh, someone who'd been uh, known to him as a child uh, and into the Soviet Union to provoke their paranoia, portraying him as a spy for Dallas. It provoked massive paranoia after the war uh, in the Soviet empire and led to thousands of arrests, torture and imprisonment and and executions. This is Noah Field um, who was known to Dulles as a young man. He'd been a young Quaker, sort of a naive type. Again and again, Dulles would use these naive types uh, for his own cynical purposes. And uh, in in this case, with, with tragic results yeah,
0: recall that story. Uh, he seemed like a slightly naive type of.
1: Um, he, was, was he, a or, uh, he was a Quaker or. He was a Quaker, a gooder, you know, someone who had joined the Communist Party uh, during the 1930s. And, uh, you know, Dulles was aware of him as a relief worker during World War II. And later he uses him as a dangle, unknown to you Noah know, Field himself. Uh, when he is inserted behind the Iron Curtain, uh, supposedly to teach, to take a teaching position there. And instead, Dulles puts out the word that he's a master spy for Dulles and leads to a wave of paranoid sort of repression on the part of Stalin. And uh, Stalin ends up uh, arresting and torturing and killing thousands of people who are just uh, good nationalist uh, types, teachers, journalists, and so on. And this is a direct result of this operation run by Dallas during the Cold War. I write about it in uh, The Devil's Chessboard. So again, again, they have this amoral man who would take decisions sometimes in league with the president, sometimes not, sometimes unknown uh, by the president, but felt that uh, he could do this because this arrogance and sense of entitlement and this ruthlessness really was bred quite early in him, as we were talking about earlier, when he was working uh, as an agent enforcer for his brother on Wall Street.
0: Right, and then after this, after, After World War II ends, you have presumably peace. And some people had a different idea of how the U.S. might go, a more progressive direction, like Henry Wallace's idea, or the American century of sort of corporate leadership, let's call it, of uh, the free enterprise system. Also, we can call it that. Um, So that in order to run this empire and still keep your halo, your democratic halo, you're going to have to do things secretly. And this is what the CIA ends up doing um, so that the U.S. can talk about liberal democracy and so on while still getting, making sure that it gets its way around the world. How was Dulles uh, perhaps the key figure behind the creation of the CIA?
1: Well, he was pushing for the creation of a CIA from the earliest days. And he thought Dewey would uh, win in 48 in the presidential election, Thomas Dewey, the Republican candidate against Harry Truman. So he and his brother were all set to go into power then and create something like the CIA uh, right early on in the Cold War in 1949. But, of course, Dewey loses to Truman in in an upset. And uh, so they have, they're out in the cold. The, the spies have the cold for the next four years. But even then, he is plotting on Wall Street uh, to build a powerful intelligence agency. Truman uh, is lobbied and pressured into creating the CIA. Um, he famously says at the time he's worried about it becoming a Gestapo. Um, He later writes a very controversial op-ed in the Washington Post right after Kennedy is killed, saying the CIA is out of control. And Dulles flew down to Missouri to uh, basically strong arm this quite elderly, frail, by then uh, retired president. And couldn't get him to change his mind about this op-ed. He said, you know, the CIA is out of control. And so what does Alan Dulles do? He changes the record. He goes back home. And in the record of the CIA, he inserts a document saying, oh, Harry Truman didn't know what he was saying. It was written by an aide who was uh, writing uh, on, you know, uh, something that Harry Truman didn't sign off on and so on. So that became the official record. But... I think Harry Truman, who creates the CIA in, in during his uh, term, when after he's elected, under strong pressure from the Dulles types, uh, was worried about the CIA becoming a monster, which is what it did become.
3: Yeah, it, it, it seems like Dulles is is throughout. I mean, th- certainly throughout your book, very concerned about protecting not only the, not the reputation of the CIA, or he is concerned about protecting the reputation of the CIA. But making sure that his version of history is the one that is officially recorded may not be the popular history, but it's always got to be the history that actually makes it into the official records, because it seems like he's fairly cognizant of how those things will be viewed in the future.
1: That's right, Brace. I think uh, media communications was essential to Alan Dulles and to the CIA, to uh, counterintelligence uh, deputies like James uh, Angleton, Jesus Angleton, uh, who was head of counterintelligence for the CIA and was a close ally of Dulles. They played the media like a mighty Wurlitzer was the uh, expression. And, uh, you know, Alan Dulles was close social pl- and political friends with people around The New York Times, The Washington Post, CBS and on and on. And those uh, publications and, and broadcasting networks uh, rolled over for the CIA again and again, whether it was taking out. Uh, a reporter for The New York Times, Sidney Grustein, who was too aggressive uh, covering the CIA's plans to overthrow a democratic government, the government of Akabo Arbenz. Or uh, later on, after the CIA's uh, version of the Kennedy assassination became the main version, the official version through the Warren Commission, the Warren Report, they covered it like it was uh, a tablet sent down from God and the cover up, which it was. So uh, the the M- American media, Jan Wenner, who was head of Rolling Stone, once said to me, uh, the media would have uncovered if there was a plot to kill Kennedy, the, the media would have uncovered years ago. Uh, I think Jan, and I, he was on my board at Salon. I love Jan in personal ways. Uh, but he was wrong, dead wrong about the American media. The American media has been supine and and follows the lead of those in power again and again. And we see this, unfortunately, today with the war in Ukraine as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even when Dulles is out in the
0: cold in terms of like the end of the OSS, he's still right there. It, when, and when you look at it in retrospect, you see how the... The framework was already there for the creation of the CIA because Dulles is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations from 1946 to 1950. And he had already been recruited by General Vandenberg, who ended up becoming the first uh, central intelligence director to draft proposals for some kind of intelligence agency. So um, this is that strata of society is still like there in the driver's seat, which is right after FDR and all those terms where he's putting out the New Deal and America seems to be at its most progressive political point in history, they're still in the driver's seat, which is... well.
1: I I think you're right, Aaron, and that period is quite interesting here because ostensibly a New Dealer, Harry Truman, who was President Roosevelt's uh, vice president, takes over after he dies. Uh, Ostensibly, he's still a liberal Democrat who's running the government, but he becomes more and more of a Cold Warrior during this period under extreme pressure from the Allen Dulles. Uh, Thomas Dewey uh, Nixon wing of the uh, Republican Party. And they use people like McCarthy, Joe McCarthy, the senator from Wisconsin, Richard Nixon, a congressman from Southern California, as their sort of battering rams against the New Deal, the remnants of the New Deal. They go after a guy named Harry Dexter White who was FDR's top economist, and saw a world, uh, an international order after World War II that would be a world of peace, and wanted to bring the Soviet Union into uh, institutions like the World Bank and the IMF, which he had envisioned uh, quite, uh, you know, early on. It was a great vision for uh, a post-war peace full order. And Harry Dexter White is pilloried by the Dallas wing of the Republican Party. He's dragged before congressional committees. Uh, He's seen as a a Soviet spy and and so on. He wasn't. Uh, He had a bad heart and he went home after testifying one day and had a heart attack and died. So they literally drove these people out of power or to their deaths. And that's how they consolidated their own power. They drove out the remnants of the New Deal. And by the time that Eisenhower was elected in 1952, uh, they were in a position to take over. Eisenhower was a weak leader. He's subcontact attracted uh, foreign policy to the Dulles brothers. Mm-hmm. John Foster Dulles was secretary of state under Eisenhower and his brother Alan ran the CIA. And basically Eisenhower who was happier out playing golf with old buddies and corporate executives, old military buddies, uh, you know, let those two brothers run, run wild. So David,
3: I, I I have always gotten the impression that the, the Eisenhower era was really the heyday of the Dulles brothers' uh, brain. Like they were this is like truly when they were in the driver's seat and um can can you tell us why this is like why why was why was this era like so perfect for these two guys and their dream
1: well uh that's a good question it and it, it goes to the heart of um uh why they became so important, so influential in American life, the delos brothers um General Eisenhower, first of all, they had recruited to run for president. Uh, he owed them. They represented that corporate wing of the Republic, Republican Party, he realized as a war hero, he would probably uh, glide easily to uh, to the White House, which he did by defeating Adlai Stevenson in 1952. Uh, he was a. Uh, Elderly, disinterested, uh, not a very strong president himself. And so as I said earlier, he really subcontracted foreign policy in particular to uh, the Dulles Brothers. And um, they, it, was, it was Eisenhower's greatest fear to have another world war. He was an ex-general who had seen the horrors of war. He didn't want that. So he allowed John Foster to keep wielding the threat. Uh, A brinksmanship, of nuclear war, as as a cudgel against the Soviet Union, against China, and so on. And he repeatedly threatened to use nuclear weapons throughout his reign, John Foster Dulles, as Secretary of State. Meanwhile, his brother Alan was going around the world on the cheap Uh, compared to the cost of an all-out military war and overthrowing governments that, uh, as I said, uh, Wall Street and others in power uh, found objectionable uh, in the US. So uh, when he overthrew the government in Iran, the democratic government of Mossadegh in Iran in 1953, when he overthrew uh, the government, democratically elected Vako Binz the following year in 1954, this was cheered by uh, President Mm -hmm. Eisenhower. He thought these were great accomplishments because basically uh, strategic goals of the U.S., meaning the corporate U.S., uh, had been achieved very cheaply Uh, in terms of U.S. treasure and blood. But of course, with great great tragedy for the people of Iran and the people of Guatemala and throughout Central America. With, uh, both of those countries, one country, Iran, was turned into a police state under the Shah and the CIA because the CIA was advising the Shah. And in Guatemala, it also became the killing fields of Guatemala. People were rounded up. There were death squads. Uh, and for many years afterwards, there was uh, the legacy of Alan Dallas hair is quite a bloody one.
0: And even during this time period, as detached as Eisenhower was reportedly, um, he did try to, at some points, rein in the CIA. Uh, you mentioned in your book, the Bruce Lovett Report. And um, I, Tim Weiner, who himself seems to have some friendliness to the agency, let's say, he wrote that book, mm-hmm. Legacy of Ashes, and he said that if the um, Bruce Lovett, not, those are two guys' last names, if their report ever had become public, it could have destroyed the CIA. So how did, how did these counter initiatives to somehow reign in the CIA
1: even come about in the first
0: place? And why do you think that they failed?
1: Well, Eisenhower, as president, kept hearing chatter about the CIA, that the CIA under Dulles was out of control. was running around the world, creating all sorts of mischief, uh, overthrowing governments, killing people and so on. And so he felt under strong political pressure originally to bring in an old World War II buddy, James Doolittle, who'd been an Air Force general and a World War II hero, to oversee a commission that looked into the CIA. I think this was in 1954 was the first one, followed by the the Bruce Lovett report. You're right, and David Bruce and Lovett were two Wall Street types uh, and diplomats Uh, who also looked into the CIA, I believe in 1956, two years later. And both of them came to the same conclusions, these inquiries, that the CIA was indeed out of control. uh, And uh, Bruce and Lovett pointed out that the relationship between the two brothers was a a very toxic one uh, between Foster and Allen. You shouldn't have two brothers that controlled foreign policy like this uh, for the US. And uh, Eisenhower, in both cases, unfortunately, Kate said, well, you know, uh, the CIA is a peculiar institution. Alan Dulles is a peculiar person, but we need them. So, yes, they're like, you know, a wildcat you bring to a party and it's on a leash, you think. But uh, it's mauling people at the party. And so Eisenhower went along with that because he felt he was actually uh, serving U.S. interests and his own interests. Later, of course, uh, you mentioned Tim Wiener, who I do think is, is uh, someone who's done what we used to call limited hangout books. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tells part of the truth, but not the full truth. Uh, But Tim Wiener uh, titled one of his books Legacy of Ashes, because that's what Eisenhower famously said finally at the end of his administration, that the CIA and Alan Dulles had left him a legacy of ashes because Ike wanted peace desperately, a detente with the Soviet Union. He did not want nuclear war. And he felt that the CIA had again and again prevented him. From doing that, most famously by setting up, and we can talk more about this with the U2 uh, shootdown. The U2 was a spy plane uh, operated by the CIA, and they assured Ike that uh, President Eisenhower that it could not be shot down. It flew too high in altitude to be shot down by the Soviet Union, but it was shot down, of course. And Gary Powers, the pilot, was taken prisoner, and that disrupted, that sabotaged. Uh, all hopes that Eisenhower had for a peace summit in Geneva at the uh, end of his administration. And that's why he said very bitterly, the CIA left him a legacy of ashes.
0: Yeah. One of the parts of the book that is not intentionally supposed to be funny, I think, but I'm sure you recognize the humor is when you quote Robert Mayhew talking about the Dulles brothers and Mayhew, who is a very sinister guy who would kill people, of course. And even he says, there's something untoward about having the brothers running state and the cia mm-hmm. i just i just don't feel comfortable with that
1: yeah of course you know uh, i interviewed bob mayhew at a film in las vegas where he's retired uh, shortly before his death he was a sinister character he basically was the guy the cia recruited during uh eisenhower years to kill castro to bring in the mafia to kill castro in cuba And again and again, the CIA would do things like this, the Dallas brothers, because they felt they uh, could get away with it. And uh, they used Mayhew, who was basically a private eye, uh, as a go-between with the mafia um, to kill Castro. He, and they of course did not succeed despite multiple attempts to kill Fidel Castro in Cuba. But I think Mayhew was a central figure if we're now jumping way ahead to 1968 I think he was a central figure in the assassination of Robert Kennedy as he ran for president in 1968, and that's a whole other story.
3: Yeah, I I mean, it always seems like within the CIA, especially during this sort of time period between the 50s and like, let's say the 80s, is that there's these sort of like Wall Street types who are at the top of the of the agency and then there's uh, either kind of like intellectual or like aspiring Wall Street types who, who have this broad middle part that they take over. And then there's kind of the heavies like guys like Mayhew at the bottom who are essentially just like unvarnished gangsters who, you know, uh, were willing to shoot anybody at any point, you know, put a, beat up a guy, put him in the trunk of a car uh, and something like this. And it was really this, like, you can sort of see this class divide within the agency itself. Um, and That's yeah, I mean, I think Mayhew really exemplifies that.
1: That's a good way of looking at it, Ray. So you have, it, you have these uh, white shoe types, these wall yeah. people at the top, who, of course, are very smooth, very uh, well-educated characters. Dulles, Richard Helms, uh, James Angleton, who used to be a poet for God's sake, before mm-hmm. he became, he was that,
3: a sensitive um, soul.
1: He was a sensitive soul. And then you have, right, as you were saying, Brace, these these thugs at the bottom, uh, Bill Harvey, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Bob Mayhew, David Morales, who essentially are killers. Uh, who enforced the CIA policy. And so these white shoot guys at the top, of course, never have to get any stains on their suits. And they're at the Georgetown cocktail parties swanning around and playing tennis with Arthur Schlesinger, the, the aide to uh, President Kennedy and so on. Dick Helms was a good friend of Schlesinger. Uh, so yeah, they could you know be in polite company in Washington, but while their thugs took care of the dirty business, Business. And the thugs were often mafia guys. They went to the mafia. The CIA recruited the mafia, not just to kill Castro, but I think were also involved in, the, uh, in some of the wet work that they did mm-hmm. in the U.S., including the assassination of President Kennedy.
3: There's a really great, uh, this isn't a question, but there's a really great, uh, uh, I, I can't remember what book it's from, but it's some book about the CIA that I read. There's all these people in Berlin, kind of talking shit on on Bill Harvey for being uncouth, and one of them tells an anecdote where he goes to use the facilities, uh, and he sort of sits down and pulls down his pants, and just guns fall out of his pants and like <laughs> onto the you know across into the other stalls, um, which I think is really
1: it's, it's it shows what these kind of guys were. This is Bill Harvey. Yeah. Yeah. Bill Harvey was uh, seen as a James Bond. Apparently of the CIA, he had a license to kill and he did use that license. But he himself was not really physically imposing. He no. was a, he's a dumpy kind of goggle eyed guy who was yeah. not particularly good looking. When Kennedy was uh, introduced to him as the James Bond of the CIA, he had to laugh because the guy looked so dumpy and so ridiculous. But he was a lethal character. And I believe, I say this in Devil's Chessboard, uh, because a CIA guy who was his deputy in Rome, Mark Wyatt, later told his children, his grown children, this, that Bill Harvey was probably centrally involved in the assassination of President Kennedy and was on a plane to Dallas in the weeks before uh, President Kennedy was killed there. Uh, He had no reason to go to Dallas at the time. He was deputy, he was head of the CIA station in Rome, but Mark Wyatt spotted him going to uh, Dallas and asked him why, he said, just to look around. So I think Harvey recruited the actual shooters. I think that was his role in Dallas.
0: So when Kennedy came to office, he had been a critic of the Eisenhower-Dulles foreign policy. Why didn't he get rid of, uh, why didn't he replace Alan Alan Dulles?
1: Well, that's the million dollar question, I think, Aaron. Why didn't Kennedy, you know, basically clean out his government of all these people who are his enemies? uh, Hoover at the FBI. Uh, Alan Dulles at the CIA, and on and on. He put a couple of Republicans in his cabinet. And what he felt was that he'd won in 1960 against Richard Nixon by such a slim margin that he had to bring in these Republicans as a way of basically having a bipartisan administration to reassure America that, uh, about the continuity of government. He was quite young. I think he was the youngest, wasn't he? Or maybe Teddy Roosevelt was the youngest president. He was quite young. He was untested as president. He felt he, there had been an old World War II hero in the White House, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, for eight years. He felt, and his father who counseled him, Joe Kennedy, felt this mm. very strongly, that uh, he had to, JFK, uh, incorporate many of these people from the Eisenhower presidency. Now, he got rid of uh, Dulles the first year, of course, after the disaster, of the Bay of Pigs. And I think in a second Kennedy uh, administration, he would have gotten rid of Hoover and the others. But uh, he did feel he had to go bring them in. And uh, it was a problem. You know, De Gaulle in France, by contrast, survived. And we can talk about this some more. Mm-hmm. It's very important, I think, to talk about Charles De Gaulle, president of France, because he himself was the target of hardliners within his own administration in France. And he was counseling President Kennedy to get rid of them. He was ruthless about getting rid of his own political enemies in France, the OAS, the secret army organization, these right wing generals who came out of the war in Algeria, the colonial war that France fought there. And he ended that war, de Gaulle, and he uh, was a target of of violent, of, uh, you know, hatred. From the right wing, because of that, and he was, of course, the day of the jackal. We remember that old movie. He was the target of several assassination attempts. One of which was very similar to Dallas. And he told President Kennedy, "Look, you've got to wipe out your enemies." He didn't. He didn't go far enough. Uh, Avril Harriman, and uh, who was a diplomat. Who brought home the test ban treaty from moscow very important uh you know wise man and it goes back to the days of fdr Council kennedy along the same lines you've got a new frontier new administration get rid of these old types who are really dangerous and he didn't or at least he didn't do it uh deeply enough
0: the s- issue with de gaulle to me is is uh very instructive and it's i don't i'm sorry to plug my my dissertation and such here but the argument that i (laughs) that i that i make is about a sort of a tripartite state where you have this legitimate government like a de gaulle or a kennedy and you have the security services and then the third part is this kind of deep dictatorial kind of sinister element that you could call the deep state and if if a head of state can mobilize the security services to go after these elements then that seems to be uh, what the only thing that you can do if you have this kind of a a power situation in a a country in terms of this sort of institutionalized corruption. And Kennedy didn't, I don't, this is something that we could like come to the conclusion of after decades of looking at it, but Kennedy was trying to manage all this on the fly and there really wasn't any precedent for how you handle this sort of thing and managing this kind of an entity, which the US as an empire and as a government was.
1: Well, FDR, and I think Kennedy learned a lot, uh, followed a lot of FDR's style and his way of governing. He famously would do that very quietly, very, um, you know, diplomatically, get rid of enemies. He got rid of Douglas MacArthur by sending him to the Philippines. Yes. Getting him out of the U.S. Douglas MacArthur was involved in the plot against FDR. That's Medley Butler, the military Mm -hmm. later exposed. Uh, but instead of having him put on trial and, and imprisoning him, he sent, this is Roosevelt, sent MacArthur overseas. So I think that was more Kennedy style too, to do it quietly. He ushered Ellen Dulles out the door at the CIA with medals, a big ceremony, you know, patting him on the back and so on. I think this just enraged Dulles even further. And Dulles, instead of retiring, went home to Georgetown, Washington, where he continued to operate as if he were still director of the CIA. People like Helms and Angleton and Howard Hunt would come to his house still and report to him. The guy that Kennedy put in charge of the CIA really didn't know the CIA, was not an old boy, was not part of the old boy network, uh, was really uh, a businessman from Southern California and didn't understand what was really happening at the CIA. So uh, the guy who continued to run the CIA, in effect, was Alan Dells, even after he was fired by President Kennedy uh, in late uh, 1961.
3: Yeah. That's, that's made really apparent throughout your book is that Dulles, despite having been sort of forcibly retired, is still in the driver's seat and still commands the respect of, and not the only respect, but you know, the, his, his former um, subordinates still completely take orders from him. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it sort of starts to congeal, especially around, um, you know, the events in Dallas, but like Dulles is, which is a, that's a real tongue twister, Dulles and Dallas, but uh Dulles seems to be, um, not even licking his wounds, but going on the offensive once he's, uh, once, once he's absent from the CIA.
1: Absolutely. I think he licks his wounds for maybe a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, he goes through a period. Angleton says where he's quite morose. He's quite depressed about being out of power, but then he realizes he can still wield a lot of clandestine power. And he does. And he essentially, uh, you know, basically declares war on the Kennedy presidency at that point. And he meets secretly with Cuban exiles who hate Kennedy because they think that Kennedy has gone soft on Castro uh, and so on. Uh, and he meets with, as you said, other uh, uh, CIA deputies, former deputies like Richard Helms and Angleton and so on. And uh, he's an essentially, uh, you know, running the agency, uh, telling people what to do. Later, he, you know, they said he got on the Warren Commission because Robert Kennedy intervened on his behalf. I think Robert Caro in his massive multi-volume, uh, you know, a book of uh, uh, books about uh, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, says the same thing. That's ridiculous. Robert Kennedy hated alan Dulles, and alan Dulles hated Robert Kennedy. He never mm-hmm. would intervene on his behalf uh, for something as as crucial as the Warren Commission. No, he, in effect, uh, you know the CIA's. Uh, people like Stuart Alsop who was a columnist in Washington, Angleton and so on, lobbied to have uh, Dallas put on the Warren Commission. And the LBJ was only too, New Allen Dallas was only too happy to have someone like Alan Dallas on the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission was a whitewash of what really happened in, uh, in uh, Dallas. It was not a, a true inquiry by any measure. And two people made sure that the CIA was never investigated, that's Helen Dulles, and that the FBI was never investigated. And that was Jerry Ford, the young congressman from Michigan, who was very close to the FBI. And uh, both of them were given direction by the FBI and the CIA and uh, knew how to operate. In many ways, the Warren Commission should have been called the Dulles Commission because Dulles was the most active member of the Warren Commission. Earl Warren himself didn't want the role, didn't want to be appointed by Lyndon Johnson, had a day job, which was quite important as Supreme Court Chief of the Supreme Court Chief Justice. So Alan Dulles was the only one who was a Retired, who had all the time in the world, and he used it quite effectively.
0: Yeah, what were the uh, key elements that you think substantiate the idea that Dulles was probably, as you could describe it, the chairman of the board of the assassination and, you know, that he dominated the commission? Uh, What aspects about the assassination itself do you think bear the fingerprints of Alan Dulles?
1: Well, look, assassination was in his toolkit uh, for many, many years, going back to World War II at least. Uh, He was part of Operation Valkyrie uh, in, well, he was head of the OSS station in continental Europe and Switzerland. Operation Valkyrie was a plot by uh, Nazi generals to kill uh, Hitler and overthrow Hitler. Uh, It failed, of course. Uh, but he used uh, assassination as a tool throughout his career. Um, when he had a party during the Eisenhower years, when people came to him and at a party, a cocktail party in Washington, said, uh, well, "Nasser was being a problem as a nationalist in Egypt, leader of Egypt at the time." And they said, "How would you get rid of a guy like that?" And he began to to actually talk about it seriously. Said, "Well, you'd need to assassinate him, and by that, you, you need to get a fanatic, uh, an Arab." Uh, mm. <laughs> To die, he began to lay it all out for the people at the party. They were stunned that he was really taking them seriously. So, assassination—they killed, uh, of course. Uh, you know, uh, Lumumba, uh, the CIA, Andre Allendeles in uh, uh, Congo, and. Uh, They again and again use this as a tool. I believe they were trying to kill Castro on multiple occasions. They later, when this was exposed during the 1970s by the church committee said, oh, we're the gang who couldn't shoot straight. We tried to kill these people, but we were uh, ineffectual. Well, the CIA was being way too modest. They actually did kill a number of people. They killed people yeah, throughout the world and i believe they brought home their killing machine to kill both uh gfk in dallas and robert kennedy in los angeles i believe both of these assassinations take place post dulles
0: uh, or post um jfk's presidency or at least well the the dag hammer skulls case seems to have dulles mm-hmm. as well and he was out of he was out of power by then, right? When uh, like he was fired by then, I believe. because Oh,
3: yeah, he was.
1: September 61, I believe, that the plane crashes and Dulles would have been... Well, Dulles was stayed on until November, I believe, of six, six, 61, but he was a lame duck. He'd been, you know, an- had been announced that Kennedy was replacing him by then. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I believe that he was aware probably of the shoot down of that airplane In Africa. Again, uh, Dallas and Sullivan Cromwell represented huge mining companies in Europe and the US that had a huge stake in the Congo. Uh, Minerals are a very important part of uh, the economy there. Uh, And, uh, you know, anyone who seemed to be in the way of that sort of profiteering. Of these mining companies, like Patrice Lumumba, who was a nationalist leader elected by the people of Congo right after this long bloody colonial rule by Belgium, uh, was seen as someone who was in the way and had to be, uh, you know, dealt with. And the CIA. Had him, had thugs kill, torture and kill Patrice Lumumba, the democratically elected governor, uh, leader of Congo. And I believe they were behind the shoot down of of the U.N., you know, the head of the UN, Dag Hammarskjöld, who was trying to bring peace to that area of Africa. Kennedy's picture is famously uh, taken at the time when he hears about Lumumba's death. Uh, He hears about it from Adlai Stevenson, his representative to the UN. The CIA knew about it for weeks and they kept it from him uh, because they knew Kennedy probably would intervene to have him released and have him freed because Kennedy was a supporter of third world nationalism. He felt that was the wave of the future. Um, so it was a, a terrible picture that was taken by the White House photographer, where his face is sort of, sort of crumpled in agony as he hears this terrible news that Patrice Lumumba has been killed. He's on the phone. It's, a, it's a, the moving picture that, in some ways, represents all the tragedy that's to come, of course, um, in the pres- Kennedy presidency.
0: Yeah, it's funny that Dulles was talking about Nasser that way, because there's a great quote from Anthony Eden where he's where he's even more uh, straightforward than that. He was the prime minister at the time. And the quote I can remember pretty well because I used to teach it to my U.S. history classes um, was uh, liquidated. I don't want him liquidated. I want him fucking murdered. That's basically the quote. And it was with, they were going to use Muslim Brotherhood fanatics because that's a good Anglo American tradition. They did the same thing. They tried to kill Sukarno under, this would have been under Dulles' reign with like six grenades thrown by some Islamist fanatics to try to kill him. So this is just what, this is a day at the office for Alan Dulles.
1: Exactly. As I said, assassination was part of their toolkit. They used it repeatedly overseas. I think they felt that there was no difference between bringing that killing machine home and using it to uh, implement their their strategy at home as well. The Kennedy brothers were in their way. and had to be removed. I think uh, it's quite clear, and my book lays this out very uh, in, in great detail, how Alan Dulles was the central figure in that plot against President Kennedy and in the cover-up as a member of the Warren Commission, which was, of course, the chief uh, commission uh, behind the cover-up of the, of the uh, assassination. He made sure that it was pinned on Lee Harvey Oswald, who was another hapless, I think, uh, you know, uh, a useful idiot, <laughs> a dope, yeah. Someone who's in, uh, as his wife Marina said, was playing with the big boys, and he was in way over his head. He was a low-level intelligence agent who was used uh, again and again by higher-ups at the CIA, including DeLos to, uh, you know, in, in ways that were uh, of use to them. So they pinned the murder on him. He was a patsy. He yelled that out to the press. Usually assassins take claim, take credit for what they've done. They're very proud of it. But mm-hmm. he yelled out he was being used. He was a patsy. He was the fall guy. And that's poor Lee Harvey Oswald was, I think, what, only 23 at the time? Imagine yourself at 23. He was uh, someone who had no education, no father. He was, uh, he reeked a victim. And so Alan Dulles was very clever about using people like that, whether Noah Field, who we talked about earlier, or Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, he knew about Oswald. We There were family connections uh, that tied him to Oswald, DeMorre and Schilder, of course, as mm-hmm. you said earlier, de Mornschild was, was Lee Harvey Oswald strange minder in the CIA, uh, working probably secretly for the CIA and as an oil uh, man going overseas and so on, reporting back to the CIA. DeMoren Schultz, this white Russian, very educated, very from a wealthy background, suddenly is befriending this this loser, you know, Leo Oswald uh, in in Dallas. And and why is that? And and so DeMoren Schulte himself later wrote a memoir that was not published uh, called I am a Patsy, uh, quoting Leo Oswald himself. And basically saying, I I was guilty for helping, uh, you know, portray Lee Harvey Oswald as Kennedy's killer. And he wasn't. He actually was an admirer of President Kennedy. Uh, So de Marnschild himself is eliminated in the 70s. He's one of a series of people who are conveniently eliminated. They said it was a suicide. Uh, Who knows uh, what the real story is? There were a number of people who were set to testify before congressional committees there about the assassination, who were, I think, conveniently eliminated. Johnny Roselli, the gangster who was mm-hmm. part of Bob Mayhew's plots, uh, CIA plots, was again killed very violently and and, and thrown into the bay in Biscayne Bay. Uh, you know, uh, we, we could go on and on. Uh, that was a very dangerous, period for people who knew something about the Kennedy assassination, uh, the 1970s, because Congress was shedding a light, finally, on the Kennedy assassination, you know, in a truthful way. Um, and those people who were killed, sam Kana, the gangster in Chicago, Johnny Roselli in Florida, uh, you know, DeMorne Schultz in Florida, you know, they had a lot of things to say about the Kennedy assassination.
0: Yeah, as I understand it, DeBornfield was uh, kind of Oswald's minder in Dallas after yeah. jay Walton Moore, the local CIA person in Dallas, told him, Hey, you should go befriend this guy, Oswald. So he does, which is obviously mm-hmm. extremely suspicious. And then later, DeBornfield leaves the country, goes to Haiti for two, gets 200 grand for oil, something, something, not really specified. But one thing that I came across recently, and either I hadn't seen it before or I'd forgotten it. Was that when he passes off when Duersonville passes off Oswald to the Paines, you know Ruth and Michael Payne? Mm-hmm. It's at there's a it's at a party and at the party is held by two Standard Oil executives, also like two oil people. So there's the, the Dulles, you know, and Ruth Payne's sister obviously works for the CIA. So there's so many fingerprints around Oswald where everybody that he knows is
1: CIA connected
0: or otherwise, and I mean, well, it's, it's actually- amazing.
1: The Texas Book Depository was owned by an oil man right very right wing uh, CIA connected guy DH Byrd I mean it goes on and on I mean Dallas was the 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 place where Kennedy uh, could be killed and killed I think very effectively and the cover up to occur because the police department was very corrupt it, the mayor uh was uh, uh the brother of the guy Kennedy fired who was the number 2 guy at CIA uh, Cabell and so you know I mean Dallas just reeked of of uh sorry Killing zone for, yeah. for- President, and so as soon as he got to Dallas, his brother didn't want him to go there. Bobby Kennedy, who was Attorney General, begged him not to go there. They were getting so many warnings about Dallas, uh, and of course, the day he shows up, the oil men, the oil guys, pay for a front page ad in, in the Dallas Morning News saying "Welcome to President to Dallas, President Kennedy," and black bordered like a funeral announcement saying you're basically a communist appeaser. You sold the Kennedy the country out. Uh, there's a uh, a poster posted all over the city uh, with his his face, JFK's face, like a mug shot, say wanted for treason. So mm-hmm. Dallas was enemy territory. They had it wired, uh, the police department, and so on. Jack Ruby was uh, a mafia errand boy, basically owned a nightclub in uh, in Dallas, and he was given an offer. He couldn't refuse kill oswald so uh he can't talk and so he goes in there two days later and kills him whereas dallas during this whole period i found this out because i looked at his daybook, his calendar for the weekend of november 22nd 1963. he's two years after being fired by kennedy as head of the cia he's going to a secure cia location for the weekend Camp Peary, known as The Farm, in Northern Virginia. They've disappeared that page, by the way, since my book came out. they Someone went You're in joking. and took the page out of the Princeton Library, the sealy Mud Library, and it's now not available any longer. Is that page that shows where Dallas was the weekend that John Kennedy was killed in Dallas and Jack Ruby kills Oswald. Very strange. Very, very, very strange. Oh, that's, in-
3: that's incredible. I, yeah, I did not know that. I think Lisa Pease posted that, uh, that.
0: She may still have a picture of it, too.
1: A number of us, a number of researchers have copies of that page. And so it's ridiculous for them to try and make it disappear. But that's how they operate. That's how they operate during Holland reign, and they still operate that way. These are sleazy people who are against democracy. And, you know, the people like... Uh, us, basically, are the few truth-tellers that are out there. But the corporate media, the mainstream media, they're all part of this cover-up. To me, all the scales fell off my eyes as a, as a liberal journalist, basically, a mainstream journalist in many ways, when I saw what they'd done about the Kennedy assassination. And, uh, you know, that led to other questions I had. And and many people in the media know this, but they won't go there because the assassination is the third rail, and they won't go there because of their careers. I asked Ben Bradley, who was the hero of Watergate, the head of uh, the you know the uh, Washington Post, top Mm -hmm. editor, and he had been JFK's best friend in the Washington media, and he wrote a memoir about JFK. And I said to Ben. He's, he was retired by then, but he still had an office at the Washington Post. I was researching brothers. I said, Ben, why didn't you do more? You had the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the 1970s. You could have gone beyond behind them even, had them as cover. Why didn't the Washington Post devote top investigative talent to And he was honest with me. He said it would have meant my career. He, you know, so... Basically, the people in the media, American media, the top people in the media. Don Hewitt said the same thing to me at 60 Minutes. He was the creator of 60 Minutes, the most uh, prominent investigative show on TV. So those two could have broken the story. Don Hewitt, Ben Bradley in the 1970s. And they had a congressional committee that was looking into the assassination at the time. And they instead caved. They are wimps. Uh, Ben Bradley and Don Hewitt, these men who like to pose as strong, you know, swaggering types, they're Mm -hmm. women. So the American media is full of cowards. And mostly they uh, operate out of uh, fear for their career. And particularly nowadays when the American media is being downsized, everyone's afraid uh, that they'll lose their job. So it, it really is up to, you know, people like us, independent, uh, filmmakers and scholars and and researchers and authors to try and get the truth out about america whether it's the kennedy assassination or the invasion of ukraine which is partly uh you know you have to point fingers at nato as well as at putin
2: absolutely
1: uh, the disaster that's going on in ukraine right now So uh, we don't get this story. Look at the Washington, look at the New York Times today. The front page is full of uh, war hysteria that's prompting, pushing us closer and closer to an all-out war in Ukraine, a nuclear war. Um, And we don't have leaders like Kennedy and Khrushchev anymore who got us out of this terrible nuclear knot over Cuba in 1962. Instead, we have people like Biden and Putin, these I think, you know, men who are not of the same measure, let's put it, as Khrushchev and Kennedy were.
0: David Talbot, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you, Aaron. The title of this episode is Deep Statesman, Alan Dulles and the Devil's Chessboard. In American Exception, the book, I use the term deep statesman to describe Clark Clifford. I actually meant to go back and expand more on the concept and on those who the term describes, people like Alan Dulles first and foremost, but also characters like Dulles' fellow Warren Commissioner John McCloy or Dean Acheson or Richard Helms. We didn't get too much into Helms, but he's a fascinating character. His full name is Richard Megara Helms. His middle name was taken from his grandfather, Gates Megara. We spoke a little bit about how Alan Dulles was friendly with Thomas McKittrick, the Nazi-connected president of the Bank for International Settlements. Well, Richard Helms' grandfather, Gates Megara, was the very first president of the BIS. So this is a family with a lot of power and money, enough money to send Helms to an elite Swiss boarding school where he was classmates with the future Shah of Iran. Helms was likely the highest-ranking CIA official involved in the JFK assassination. Under JFK and during the Warren Commission under LBJ, Helms ran the CIA's operations arm, a.k.a. the Dirty Tricks Department, more formally known as the Directorate of Plans. He was a key figure later in Watergate, and when Nixon fired him and sent him to be the ambassador of Iran, Helms was instrumental in keeping the deep state thriving by helping to set up the Safari Club. This allowed the deep state to go on perpetrating dirty tricks even while the CIA was suddenly a little bit timid as a result of the post-Watergate intelligence scandals. I guess the point here is that it is important to understand these people and the impact they have had on U.S. democracy. We all owe David Talbot a debt of gratitude for bringing some light to the grimmest of deep statesmen, Alan Dulles. If you haven't read Devil's Chessboard, get a hold of this book as soon as you can. It's a masterpiece. Also, and this probably goes without saying, go and watch JFK, Destiny Betrayed, the four-hour cut. Yes, I'm in the film for a moment, but Talbot appears more often and is fantastic. Knowing David, I bet we've not heard the last from him. I guess we'll just have to see what else he's got in the pipeline. Today, I'm very thankful that we got to have this conversation with him. Full disclosure here, I'm actually very relieved to have been able to put this episode together, Not just because of the excellent guest and co-host, but because we faced serious technical issues. First, we had to switch over to Zoom, which was tricky. But then, old dry hole, Dunn lost his internet connection because of some mysterious tumbleweeds or something. Uh, Can we blame our friends in in Langley for that? Um, Yeah, why, why not? Nice try, guys. Thankfully... Brace was able to rejoin on his phone. So I want to thank our guest co-host, Brace Belden, along with his friends, Liz Branchak and Young Chomsky. Brace runs the True Truanon podcast. And right now, as it happens, True Truanon is in the middle of an excellent series on the Boston bombing, featuring our own dear pod friend, Ben Howard, as well as Ben's brother. Did Bush do the Boston bombing? Well, the series is still ongoing, so I won't spoil it for you. Check it out. Thanks to Dana Chavaria for the audio engineering, Casey Moore for the episode art, and Mock Orange for providing the music. As this episode is dedicated to Peter Dale Scott, I want to thank Peter for inspiring us to mind the darkness and the light.